authority of Scripture. How we know the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the world's bestseller. And yet this book, the Bible, for the past 100 years in America has been under an increased attack. And it is reaching a fever pitch. For the first time in a most recent Gallup poll, more people in America now believe the Bible should not be taken literally. Today there's an ever-growing movement to do away with the Bible. It's been years that it was made illegal in the school. Workplaces now prohibit just about any idea of the Bible, government of course. And crazy as it sounds, even in evangelical churches, I heard of a pastor the other day that asked his people not to bring their Bibles because it uh, threatened others. Don't bring a big Bible to church. It was too threatening to guess. Folks, we have swallowed a false banner of tolerance. And by the way, let me just say, I am, uh, I am concerned that the world has hijacked another word, like tolerance. You can't even, it used to be that being tolerant was a good character quality. And yet today they have hijacked that to mean their own definition. Did you know that in 1782, the U.S. Congress voted in favor of a resolution recommending and approving that the Bible should be used in public schools? The Congress actually said the Bible should be studied in our public schools. Sad when our last president said that America is not a Christian nation. First president in the history of America to publicly say that we do not have a Christian nation. It's not surprising that he would say that. But 200 years later, it was legal to study the Bible in the public school. 200 years later, it is actually illegal. And now a town can't even have a Christmas parade. They have to call it a light parade or a winter parade. Folks, this generation must face the appalling fact that if it's not Bible sense, we're going to go back to nonsense. America is going to go back to the dark ages if we don't have the truth and the light of the Word of God. And that is exactly what is happening. There is a battle for the Bible today. In fact, anymore, it's not really what denomination you go to, but it is, do you believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? And strangely enough, most Christian colleges do not believe that the Bible is, in fact, inerrant and infallible. Well, I will tell you this morning that we unashamedly here at the home church say the Bible is infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. And that is our stand. And that's what we're going to be talking about for these several weeks here. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Before we do that, that's a neat little story I read, cute story. A few, a uh, couple years ago now, we have a missionary that we support in Vanuatu, Brother Panero. Vanuatu used to be called New Hebrides. When we were there, uh, we went to a big military base, a GI base. Uh, what you may not know about this South Pacific island is that it was pretty much well known for its cannibalism. And uh, well, I can certainly imagine after being there for sure. But this is the story of a South Sea Islander, probably from Vanuatu, who proudly displayed his Bible 
to a GI during World War II. He had received it from a, as a present from one of the missionaries a time before. The soldier said, ah, we, we've outgrown that kind of thing. And the native smiled back and said, well, it's a good thing we haven't, because if it weren't for this book, you would be our evening meal. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of the book. And I pray the Lord, every member of the home church and everyone who counts this as their church, Lord, would affirm the fact that your word is inerrant. And I thank you for the opportunity to look into another wonderful passage validating the scriptures in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Second Timothy. Hopefully we'll get a good report here before the end of the service about our brother. The book of Second Timothy, we have... Uh, the wonderful Apostle Paul laying out priorities. And as you'll say in this passage, we're going to look at for the man of God or the woman of God, anybody who wants to be of God. Paul's truth, Paul's issue was about the truth. The Apostle Paul had paid a high price for preaching truth. <laughs> he could have gone and made itself a lot easier on himself if he hadn't gone to all these cities preaching the truth. But it was so important to him, he said to Timothy, young preacher, you have got to hold on to this in your mind, that the Word of God is inspired. Today in America, we have lots of teaching and lots of preaching even. The overwhelming majority of teaching today and preaching today in churches is relational. And it is getting to the point anymore where there's very not truth preaching. My opinion is that the Bible is the best relational book there is, and by appreciating and embracing the truth, we will have good relationships for sure. And so here he was. Timothy was uh, in a battle for the Bible way back then. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, it is dangerous times are going to come for the church. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. This know, know this young preacher, Timothy, my young brother, my young son in the Lord, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. The last days, meaning the last era, the church age. And if those were the last days 2,000 years ago, how much more are they today? Notice what he says is going to happen in verse 13. Evil men, seducing men, who don't get better but wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I will tell you that it is a dangerous time for the church of God, and it's not going to get easier. Every decade, it just gets more challenging for the church of God. Therefore, we must have a unflinching, strong adherence to the scriptural authority of the Word of God. And I'm glad that this is a church that believes just that. Now, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? I'm going to give you three key reasons this morning. First of all, the attestation of experience. And that is that we can attest, we can affirm and we can testify that God's Word is true because of experience, the experience, the interaction we've had with the Bible. The Bible teaches that God loves humanity. And this love is birthed in the heart of every man. Across this world, there are people that are seeking God through Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and all the religions of the world. And even though it is an error, they actually have a hunger 
because it arises out of man's search for God. But God has revealed Himself to mankind. In fact, He wrote it down. He gave us to us. It is called the Word of God. And it's amazing how that we find even at times atheistic people embracing God because God's Word is so powerful and the experience of embracing it is just a powerful experience. And so we find that personal experience is one of the greatest uh, attestations or one of the greatest verifications that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. I love that very sweet verse in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste, oh, taste the Lord. Yes, God is good because we've tasted how good He is. Christopher Hitchens, a couple of years ago now, wrote a bestseller, God is Not Great. He's a guy from the UK, and he saw an opportunity to tap in on cynicism in the world, and a book filled with errors, and uh, he acts like he knows the Bible, but it's just a terrible book. It's just a, uh, you say, why would a guy write a book like that? Well, we know why he uh, wrote it, because he saw an opportunity to get some money. But, uh, but the fact is, the real reason he wrote a book like that is because he's never tasted the Lord. But when you taste the Lord, you know that God's Word is true. You cannot convince me that God is not great while I'm tasting the Lord. Oh, God is not good. I mean, like me eating an In-N-Out burger and coming up, someone coming up to me and saying, that's not good. It's not good? No, it's terrible. It really is. It tastes terrible. No, it doesn't taste terrible to me. What you need is a tofu burger. You know what? I will tell you what. He's not going to convince me because I am tasting it, and I am tasting the Lord. A Christian with an experience is never at the mercy of an unbeliever with an argument. Mark Twain said, most people are bothered by the passages of the Scripture they do not understand. But the passages that bother me are the ones that I do understand. And I wonder about this, Mr. Hitchens, if Scripture is so much nonsense and there's nothing to it, then why get so worked up about it? Why write a book about it? Why do all that if it's just a bunch of nonsense? I think maybe uh, you're, it's bothering you a little too much. The fact is, he that believeth on the Son... 1 John 5.10, he that believeth on the Son has the witness in himself. How do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? Because I have the witness. I have the witness of experiencing God. I have firsthand knowledge. What do we know about Scripture? First of all, Paul says that Scripture is instrumental, first of all, for salvation. Let's start in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, that from a child... Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Timothy, you have had a blessed privilege in your life. Your mother taught you the Word of God. Now, I want to point out that it didn't say your dad taught you. It is thought that the dad was a lost Greek man, maybe even not in the family. But I just want to give a shout here for every single mom who is raising a child, you can still raise up a Timothy. Notice what it says, your mother, it said in the previous verses, and your grandmother taught you, notice what it says here in verse 15, thou hast known the holy scriptures, the holy scriptures, holy meaning uh, they are from God, scripture meaning that which is written down. 
This is actually not the same word as the next uh, uh, verse where it talks about Scripture, but it's talking about the Old Testament. And we must never underestimate the power and the beauty of the Old Testament because it is a picture of a God with a holy standard. When you read through the book of Leviticus and other books there, we are reminded how that it's required that a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin. It was the Old Testament that led Abraham to the Lord. It was the Old Testament that led Noah to the Lord. It was the Old Testament that led David to the Lord. And notice what it says here. You say, well, uh, why, why do we need this uh, holy scriptures? Because apart from the Word of God, there can be no salvation. How do we know that? Because it's, it is the incorruptible seed. I can't look at a star and say, uh, I'm going to go to heaven someday. I can't look at a tree and say, I'm going to go to heaven someday because it's not a promise. God requires a promise. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I can't be saved unless I stand on a promise. I can't have a promise unless I have the word of God. It is the incorruptible seed as we saw last week. And so salvation is instrumental for salvation. I want our children to be saved. I want our grandchildren to be saved. And I pray for them. I hope for the best in their life. But sharing Scripture is the way to get our family saved. Scripture helps us to be saved. It is instrumental, number two, for sanctification. Verse 17, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be perfect. Perfect means full-grown, a man of God. I just love that phrase, don't you? Man of God. I love it when someone says, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. And when we're a man of God, we want marching orders from the commander-in-chief that the man of God might be full-grown, mature. And if you're tired of being a 90-pound weakling in the faith, God says you can be full-grown by the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, John 17. Thy word is truth. That's how we're set apart, sanctified, not only for salvation, not only for sanctification, but for service. Look at verse 17, that the man of God might be perfect, mature, full-grown, sanctified, thoroughly furnished. The Word of God thoroughly furnishes me to be a husband, to be a father, to be a man, to be a worker, thoroughly furnished through the Lord's Word for good works. I want to have my furnishings if I'm going to be a soldier in the Word and the Lord's work. I want to make sure I've got some furnishings. I want some equipment. And so it's instrumental. Not only is it instrumental, Scripture is inspired. We talked about that last week. I'm going to go over that again because it's so important. And every part of this verse is important. All plenary is the theological word. It just means complete. All Scripture. Scripture is the uh, Greek word graphe, which means written as in graphics, all Scripture, by the way, that which is written down. There's a lot of oral traditions that have been passed down. There's a lot of fairy tales and stories and things that people will tell, but I'm glad that God wrote it down so that we can all, it never changes that way. You know, stories change and fables change, but Scripture does not. It's written. All Scripture is given 
by inspiration. It is breathed out by God. Breathed out. All, not some, not part. It, not part of it, the Bible is inspired. All of the Bible is inspired by God. And it has to be that way because Jesus proclaimed in John 10 and verse 35 that Scripture cannot be broken. The Word of the Lord cannot be broken. It is like a beautiful stained glass pane. If you break one part of the Scripture, the whole is broken. Jesus said you can't break one without breaking it all. You can't break all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is all that is written. The New Testament is written down. Sometimes people say, well, I believe in the Old Testament because it was validated by Jesus himself. But the New Testament, and by the way, anytime people doubt Scripture, it's almost always the New Testament. Most people don't doubt whether the Old Testament is from God. If they doubt anything, they all doubt the New Testament and the canonicity of the New Testament. But here we find a, a wonderful fact that the New Testament is validated as being from God because it is said that it is, it is written down, therefore it is from God. 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, Paul is discussing pastors and their compensation. And what does he quote? He quotes Luke. Did you get that? Paul quotes the book of Luke. Here we find New Testament uh, uh, epistles and uh, gospels quoting one another. What's important about Luke chapter 10 and verse 7? It was quoting Deuteronomy. The idea is that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I want you to notice how important the word is is there. Notice, and it does not say in that verse, all Scripture inspired by God is profitable. All Scripture inspired by God is. The is has to be in the right order there. If it says all Scripture is inspired by God, that means everything is inspired by God. If you say all Scripture inspired by God is then good for us, which some versions say, such as the ASV, the American Standard Version, says it that way. It leaves room, and it's a misleading uh, translation, and it's, of course, one that others uh, clomp onto, saying, well, yeah, but that Scripture is not inspired. This Scripture is inspired. No, all Scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, it has authority. It is instrumental. It is inspired. And then also, Scripture is instructive. Notice what it says in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration. It has been breathed out by God. Breathed out. God didn't just inspire a man of God and then let them write what came to his mind. No, he breathed it out over the vocal cords of mankind. It was God's breath. And it is profitable for the doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. What does Scripture instruct us about? Well, he gives us four things here. It instructs us in doctrine. That tells us what is right to do. It is instructive for reproof. That tells us what is wrong and we shouldn't do. For correction. That helps us get right when we're wrong. And then notice it says for righteousness. Well, that helps us stay right when we're right. And that's what Scripture does. It is instruction for all four of those. What a travesty today that so little real preaching of the Word of God is done. It, uh, I read recently what uh, one man asked an evangelist, and the, or excuse me, the evangelist asked the man. 
He said, sir, what do you believe? Well, he said, I believe what my church believes. Well, what does your church believe? Well, it believes what I believe. Well, what do both of you believe? Well, we believe the same thing. And that's really what a lot of people believe. In fact, I'll be honest with you, as I am out and about, and sometimes I'll ask somebody, are you a born-again Christian? It is uh, rare, really, when someone can give a clear definition of what being saved, what actually the time that happened, how they know they're saved. I mean, honestly, it is rare when I find a Christian who can actually articulate the gospel and how that they know that they have been truly born again. And they just say, I believe what my church believes. <laughs> what do they believe? Well, they believe what I believe. No, we need to believe what the Scripture says. And that's the way we can fully equip a believer for every good work. And so how do we know that the Bible is true? It is the attestation of experience. Experience tells me that the Word of God is certainly true. I've tasted the Lord, and I know it's true. Number two, it is the affirmation of evidence. Not only is the attestation of experience, it is the affirmation of evidence. When God asks a man to believe the Bible, God gives evidence. God never has asked for blind faith. I will tell you that over the years, uh, my journey into belief of the Bible and accepting Christ and believing the Bible as the Word of God has not been a leap into a dark, but it has rather been a step into the light. Sometimes well-meaning people, Christians will say something like, look, you just have to have faith. There's no way to prove this. You just have to have faith. My friend, that is foolishness, absolute foolishness. The fact is, real faith is rooted in fact. Now, it's true. I have to trust that fact, but that's the job of God. God revelates through the Word, and He illuminates with the Holy Spirit. Those two work together to put a, a spotlight on the Word of God. Faith without fact is fancy. It's not truth. You may have heard about the man who fell off a cliff. And he managed to grab a tree limb on the way down. At that time, a following conversation ensued. As he's hanging onto the tree limb off the side of a cliff, is anyone up there? I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? Yes, Lord, I believe. I really believe, but I can't hang on much longer. That's all right. If you really believe, you have nothing to worry about. I will save you. Just let go of the branch. There was a moment's pause. Then the words, is there anyone else up there who can help me? The fact is, if we're going to trust somebody or something, we better find out who it is and why we're trusting them. And that's what this problem was. Now, notice what it says about the word evidence. Now, when I'm saying evidence, I'm not saying human rationality because nobody figures God out. Someone say, well, you just go study about God. You'll figure him out. That doesn't work that way. There has to be an illumination of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in Matthew 11, verse 25. God has hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, but has revealed them unto babes. We have to be childlike in our faith. Someone says, oh, that's just a baby. Well, sometimes these little children have a lot more brains than we have. We sometimes do things as adults, we're just like, how crazy is that? We can't, we can't figure our way to God. We can't 
We can't rationalize God. One uh, clever uh, preacher I read, I loved it. He said, human rationality trying to find truth is like a blind man in a pitch dark room at midnight looking for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> That's fact. I mean, for rationality to say, I'm going to figure out God, it doesn't work that way. And so when I'm talking about evidence, I'm not really talking about uh, that kind of evidence that we can, tangible, we can put our hands on, and although there is a lot of that. The fact is, what we're talking about is just an evidence that certainly God just validates what we already believe. There's historical evidence. For example, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, written by Dr. Luke. Luke chapter 1 verse 2 says, even as they were delivered them unto us, which from the beginning, that actually means from above, God gave it, who was the eyewitness? Gave it to the ministers of the word from the beginning. Basically, what Luke was saying was, a lot of these things I didn't see, but God saw them, and he delivered it to me. And when he delivered it to me, I wrote it down. And we saw that as we were going through the book of Acts. As we were going through the book of Acts these last few months on Sunday nights, I have been absolutely incredibly blessed by the details Dr. Luke would give in all the different things about the places he went to, the boats, and all the times of the year, and it's just incredible. If you were here on Sunday nights, you may remember telling the story, but I don't want to share it again. There was Sir William Ramsey, professor of humanities in Aberdeen University and College in Scotland. No man knew more about the history of the Middle East than Dr. Ramsey. He was a world-renowned scholar. He read through the book of Acts, and he was not impressed. He said, it is a highly, and I quote, a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of primitive Christianity, basically saying it was a fairy tale. And so he was subsidized to go and follow the chronology, follow the geography of the book of Acts. So he did, in particular, Paul. And he said so exactly what he did. He went to every place that Paul said he went. He went to he went uh, same time of the year. He sailed on a ship, uh, what he thought might be like the same time. I mean, he did everything that he could possibly do to reproduce that. After, it took two years, when he came back home, he said, I now view, listen, Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness and will stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. In fact, he even wrote a book validating the book of Acts. Unbelievable. In Daniel chapter 5, for example, here's another historical evidence. You may remember Daniel saw handwriting, or he uh, saw handwriting, Belshazzar saw handwriting on the wall. And the Bible teaches us that uh, Belshazzar was the king of Babylon, the last king of Babylon. But uh, um, historians say, no, that's actually a false because Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And in some people's mind, that really uh, was a clink against the Bible until one day an archaeologist uh, was digging and they unearthed a certain cylinder there from the Middle East, Antiochus cylinder. And guess whose name was on that cylinder? Belshazzar. His name, just like it was in scripture, his name was on that cylinder. Now, it was true that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, but that actually was also true that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. That's because they were father and son, 
and they were co-regents at the same time. So just because the Bible didn't mention Nabonidus didn't mean that he wasn't, that, uh, that Belshazzar was wrong. I was uh, reading one little um, person who was talking about inconsistencies in the Bible, and they said, look, Jesus called the guy John in one book. He called him Mark in another book. Well, what is his name, John or Mark? Well, guess what? It's John Mark. And uh, that's the same thing here. Belshazzar and Nabonidus were co-regents. Did you know that the Bible actually validated that already? Look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 7. Belshazzar is giving a, a promise to uh, Daniel, and he said, if you can help me figure what these uh, visions mean, then he said, I will clothe you with scarlet, you'll have a, a gold chain about your neck, and you shall be the, what, third ruler in the kingdom. Why would he say the third ruler? That's because Belshazzar and Nabonidus were co-regents, and he said, I will make you a co-regent with us. The fact is, though, whether the archaeological people had confirmed it or not, it's still true. Historical people have also scoffed at the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, for one simple reason. They said back in that age, there was no such thing as a written alphabet. So how could Moses write down the Scriptures? They said it must have happened years later, therefore it's uh, unreliable. And then they were excavating in northern Egypt and found some tablets, the El Armana tablets. And these were business transactions and land deals. Not only did they know how to write, but according to this, uh, these tablets, they also uh, had a post office. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming the letters got back and forth on time, but look at that. I mean, there we find the fact that, no, it, they very definitely had handwriting at that time. They were scholars, they were educated, they were brilliant, and yet they were wrong. There's also scientific evidence. Now, folks, the fact is there are dozens, there are hundreds of historical things just like I've talked about. These are just two of them. There's also scientific evidence. Now, thank God for science, and thank God for the science of the Bible. Now, it's true that the Bible is not per se a scientific book, but when it speaks about science... It is astoundingly accurate. The Bible was the first one that indicated the earth was round. And for years, people, the best scientists of the day thought the world was flat, even back as early as Christopher Columbus's day. But when it speaks on things, it is absolutely accurate. Some of you have maybe read parts of the book or all of the book of S.I. McMillan's None of These Diseases. It's a fascinating book. It's actually several years old, but uh, Dr. McMillan... Uh, a medical doctor, also a Christian, he wrote this book. The things I'm going to tell you about came from his book. In 15, uh, or excuse me, they found um, some uh, manuscripts out of Egypt known as the Papyrus Ebers. The Papyrus Ebers, they are 1500 BC. It was a compilation of the greatest medical knowledge of the day. The, and by the way, Egypt was the leader in uh, world knowledge. It was the first world of the day. And uh, Dr. S.I. McMillan says that interpreted out of these papyrus ebers, they had, uh, a, they had a solution for if hair is turning gray. And so, and I quote, anoint it with blood of a black cat that has been boiled in oil 
with the fat of a rattlesnake. Now, personally, I use the rattlesnake fat, and uh, that's what I use for my head. And you can see what it's done for me, but uh, that's what Papyrus Eber said that you're supposed to do for gray hair. For splinters, wound care, something embedded in your skin, I quote, take worm's blood and donkey dung and put it on the wound. Now, can you imagine what would happen if you put donkey's dung on an open wound? Now, aren't you glad that we use the medicines of today rather than the best medicines of Egypt, 1500 BC? Now, what's interesting about that is that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, it says that Moses was given a scholarship by Pharaoh to the University of Cairo, as it were. He learned everything, all the knowledge. In fact, he learned the very things that I was saying is what he was taught. Isn't it interesting then that none of that entered into the Bible? Why did Moses not put it in the Bible? Because it was screwball, that's why. He knew it was screwball. God gave him the truth. God gave it to him. He gave him the truth. And I'm glad, for one, that that kind of stuff didn't make it into Scripture because it was false. It always amazes me that every era, every scientist, every medical person says, we have the truth, only to a few years later finding out they don't have the truth. I mean, I, I remember a few years ago, my mom told me that when she had uh, her children, she had us, that they'd keep them in the hospital for like seven to 10 days or something, wouldn't let them move. And by the time you got out of the hospital, you know, you were an invalid for about two months and it was terrible. Nowadays, boy, some, some of these ladies have their baby in the morning, they're home by the afternoon. It's just, things change. There was a time in the Middle Ages when the Black Plague came into Europe. It's called the Bubonic Plague. It is the greatest human tragedy in the history of mankind that's recorded. One out of four people died, 60 million people. The greatest medical people of the day tried everything that they possibly could. Government tried everything that they possibly could. Religion tried everything that it possibly could. Do you know how the Black Plague was finally stopped? It was a group of Bible-believing pastors who began to read Scripture, Leviticus 13, verse 46, for example. What they noticed was that the Jewish people in the area were not dying like the others. Well, what was different about the Jewish communities? They were following the Old Testament laws of uh, purification. For example, Leviticus chapter 3, by the way, that also put them under the scruples of everybody. They didn't like them as they've always been looked at that way. But in chapter 13 of Leviticus verse 46, it says, all the days of the plague, he's unclean. He shall dwell alone. It means quarantining. Now, today we know when someone has a communicable disease, especially one that's potentially dangerous to, you know, a big population, that quarantining is absolutely vital. Here, by the way, it goes on in that chapter to say that uh, you do often washings and even burning the clothes of the one who has the, uh, the plague. The fact is, folks, God's Word has the answer, and we may not speak about uh, it's not especially a scientific book. When it speaks about science or medical, whatever it is, it is absolutely accurate. 
And so how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Experience tells us. Look what it's done. I mean, you can't tell a person he hasn't experienced God. I mean, thank God what he's done in my heart. You mean, that's amazing. The attestation of experience. They can attest to it. The affirmation of evidence. And then finally, the declaration of fulfilled prophecy. Maybe the greatest tangible is the fact of every prophecy is spot on. There are 300 prophecies about Jesus himself fulfilled. Now, let me just put that in perspective. You know, people today gamble on sports events, and all they have to do is whether the team is going to win or lose, and most people's rate is less than 50%. You would think they'd even be 50%, you know, win or lose. But we're talking not just one game, one thought, win or lose. We're talking about 300 facts. Many of them prophesied 15 hundred, two thousand years before it happened. Let's imagine. All right, let's say that I'm saying, okay, there's going to be a man who's going to be born. He's going to be born in Toledo, Ohio. His name is going to be this. He's going to be born in 2052. He is going to go to this place, and I start rattling off one after fact after fact after fact. He's going to go to this golf course. I like golf. He's going to go to hole number eight. He's going to hit a hole in one. I mean, specific. The, uh, the officials are going to deny him. You'd say, well, yeah, that's going to really happen, folks. We're talking 300 details about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And all of them have either come to pass, and some are still waiting to be come to pass about His second coming. But folks, that is an incredible accuracy. It's no way that it could have been done anything other than the fact that God did it. It's interesting how that the enemies of the Bible, they say, well, actually, Jesus prearranged a lot of these things. He prearranged for these things to happen. Oh, really? That's interesting. But I, say, I would say actually they are correct. God, as we sang a few moments ago, is sovereign. And he, as sovereign God, did prearrange it. But th- let me just give you three of them. First of all, he prearranged to be born in Bethlehem. Pretty good plan, huh? To arrange when you're going to be born in what city? <laughs> how, did, how in the world did Jesus do that? I don't know. But these uh, deniers of the Bible will say Jesus prearranged it. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Second of all, he arranged to be crucified. Now, Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written as if the person was standing at the foot of the cross and telling about all that happens, the piercing of the hands and the feet and the gambling for the garments. Oh, just so you know, that was given 700 years before it happened. And at a time when crucifixion wasn't even known. The time, the way of execution at that time was stoning. And here they said he would actually hang on a wood cross. Number three, he arranged to be buried and rise on the third day. Now this is the ultimate in prophecy, but in Hosea chapter six and verse two, it says his body would leave the grave after day three. Wow. All this was done, Matthew said, so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Chance? No. Infallible proofs. That's what it says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, that the resurrection of Jesus could be proved by many infallible proofs. 500 people, for example, saw him after his 
uh, death and, and his resurrection. Many people would believe, and many atheists and educated people will say they believe in Julius Caesar. Did you know that the actual uh, fact of Julius Caesar, there's only one real writing that, about him, that was his own writings. 50 BC, Julius Caesar wrote about Rome and the things that went on. Did you know that there's only three corroborating manuscripts that say anything about Julius Caesar that they have in hand? That's a few odds and ends here, but the only three that's really uh, thought of as uh, reliable. Julius Caesar, 50 years before Christ, his writings. Did any, can anybody corroborate that he was, even existed or it even was real? Or that what he described in Rome happened? There's about three that uh, do corroborate it. Two of them were in the mid-100s, about 150 years after Caesar. And the most reliable manuscript is in 900 AD. And so 900 years after Caesar, the best evidence that what he said happened really happened, who almost any historian would say, yeah, that actually absolutely happened. How do you know? Well, because he wrote it down. Who can corroborate it? Well, nobody. Did you know that there's 5,000 manuscripts about the New Testament? Many of them very complete. And many of them dating back to within a few years of when they were originally written down. 5,000 manuscripts validating Scripture. That's why Acts 1-3 says, many infallible truths. So many <laughs> infallible truths. I mean, for a person to say that the Bible isn't the Word of God, you're just absolutely, you are just closing your mind, your eyes, you are not accepting anything. How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Experience tells us. Changed lives tell us. Affirmation of evidence. There is empirical evidence. Now, that's not what we go by, but the fact is there is historical evidence. The fact is there is medical evidence. And then perhaps the greatest reason, if you want to look for evidence, is that there is fulfilled prophecy. But the truth is this morning, it's not God's goal to prove to you and I that God's Word is true, or that God is even God, or Jesus is God, because that's not the way God rolls. God is a God of free will. Look what he says in John 10 and verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. The fact is, if you think the Bible is the Word of God, that's because you're sheep. You're hearing the voice of God. If you don't think it's the Word of God, it's because you're not a sheep. You can't hear the voice of God. But if you're reading the Bible and it's telling you, this is God's Word, this is God's Word, it's burning in you. I remember one day I was working uh, on a house doing some sheetrock and stuff like that, and it's monotonous work. And so I put on some scripture, was playing it real loud. And I remember in the, in the middle of that, just to this day, I remember just that sense. I felt like I was on fire. I felt like my chest was burning. Like, man, because the more I listened to it, the more it just was firing up my soul. And I thought to myself, this, you cannot listen to this without knowing this is the Word of God. Now, why was that? Because I'm sheep, and the sheep hear the voice of God. You know, unsaved people and people who are so-called educated will say, ah, well, for me, seeing is believing. But you know that's actually the wrong way to go at Scripture. Here's what Jesus said in John 11, verse 40. Martha was 
talking about uh, different things going on. And Jesus said to her, Martha, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see? You see, the world wants to say, seeing is believing. But Jesus said, it's actually the opposite. Believing is seeing. When you believe, then you'll see. John 7, 17 explains what I'm saying. If any man wills to do God's will, he'll know the doctrine, whether it be of God. How do I know God's word is true? Because I've been trying to practice it for 60 years. I've been trying to do it. And as I, every time I do God's word, I validate it's true. It is absolutely true. Why am I convinced that God's word is true? Because believing is seeing. The world wants to say, well, if you'll show me, I'll believe. It doesn't work that way. With God, he works with the will, not just with the intellect. And the will is what often triggers the mind to see things they never would have seen before. In the, as I've been studying this message series, I'm reading so many different, in fact, many times I'm reading former atheists, educated people who came into contact with Christ and Christianity and got born again. I mean, there's just so many of them turning to Christ. It's exciting. But the fact is, once you, because many of them have a need in their life, their atheism and their education doesn't satisfy the needs in their life. But the fact is, Christ does and the Word of God does because it's alive. It's a living Word. And I'm more convinced than ever that God's Word is true. As I said earlier, you know, when science backs up the Bible, I don't have more faith in the Bible I just now have more faith in science. When archaeology backs up the Bible, I don't have more faith in the Bible. I already believe the Bible. And by the way, let me just give you a little, uh, let me give you a little tidbit here. When it comes to understanding the Bible, you must come with presuppositions. It is, uh, it is uh, uneducated to come to the Bible with an open mind. The educated, the safe way, is to come with a presupposition. Many people read the Bible and get blown away. Oh, I'm so confused. No. This is God's Word. I know it's God's Word. I have that presupposition in mind. That's the filter I read the Bible with. Now, if something shakes my faith, it doesn't shake the fact that I know it's God's Word. It just means... Until I, when I find, when I get further light, I'll find out that it is God's word. But many people come with this blank slate, so-called blank slate, which is not blank. It's really humanism. You know, it's really atheism. No, come to the Bible with this sense of, I come believing and then I'm seeing. Don't come seeing, expect to believe. Come believing, know that you'll begin to see. And that's what Jesus is pointing about, the Word of God. I finished with this story. There was a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in the explosion. His face was badly disfigured. Tragically, he lost his eyesight, and he lost both hands, had to be amputated. He was a new Christian. And one of the greatest disappointments that he had, as you might imagine, was many, with the fact that he'd no longer be able to read the Bible. Terribly disfigured, lost his eyesight, didn't have hands. His greatest disappointment, perhaps, was that he could no longer read the Bible. He heard about a lady in England who 
read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. To his dismay, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been destroyed. And by explosion, he really couldn't feel the individual little uh, marks there with the Braille. One day, as he was passing the Braille across his lips, he just happened to, with his tongue raised, uh, touch a few of the raised characters. He could feel them. And with a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. And that's exactly what he did. At the time of the reading of this article, uh, writing of this article, he had read through the Bible four times completely using his tongue. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you bow your heads with me, please?